Blank check with Griffin and David. Blank check with Griffin and David. Don't know what to say or to expect. All you need to know is that the name of the show is Blank Check. Each returning serviceman will get his job back when the war is won. And you girls and women, you'll be going home. Back to being housewives and mothers as you promised to do when you came to work with us. Your podcast will return to normal. Um, first Tobolowski, uh quote to lead off the show? Yep, I right? think so. We haven't done a Groundhog Day. I didn't do that much of an impression. I just felt kind of There is an impression to be done. Each returning? No, right. it's no, too I mean, But there's squeaky. something, right? There's something. There's a voice. There's something. I don't have it. Uh, quotes <laughs> page, for the, page for this movie is limited. Oh. The tagline for this film is terrible. Mm. And what I was uh, raking my brain to try to remember was, there, there are a number of quotes I like in the director's cut for this film, but of course none of those are listed on IMDb. Interesting. Because There's a number of quotes from the director's cut you like. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right? I feel like there were like 10 lines that jumped out to me where I was like, wow, that's a good line. And they were uh, surprisingly- They were excised. Excised. Ben, how are these levels doing? Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. Okay. <laughs> okay. We're in a new studio. Small studio. Can you turn my volume a little bit? Yeah, you turned us all down. I'm fussing with stuff. Sorry. This is a great Futzer. episode. Yeah, it's also Futzer. a good start. Well, I mean, classic blank check. You do one thing to change our completely ordinary routine, and we're all just like, this is pretty crazy. We're at a different table. We're in a different room. We've got a window again. But it's you can not, really hear the ventilation. You can really hear the ventilation. But that's ambiance. It is. I mean, look, maybe this episode <laughs> <laughs> will serve as a case study in the importance of podcast editing. Right. Much like Swing Shift is kind of an incredible case study in film editing. Yes. Because today we're talking about Two cuts of the same movie. We are. It's first time since uh, I'll do anything. Pretty much. And those were two different episodes. That's true. And I feel like other times we've been like, eh, we're just watching the director's cut. Or eh, we're just watching the theatrical. Yeah. And right. we'll right. pay a little no, bit we'll, service. Right. We'll have some chat. We'll right. have a little chat about, you know, different versions. Man's got different it. versions. Cameron's got different yeah. versions. But there are very few movies where, right, where there's like basically a different movie that exists. The differences are this fundamental. Yes. Because, uh, I mean, man rearranges stuff, adds stuff, subtracts stuff, but it doesn't feel as wholly. No, um, it's twiddling, usually. Right. I mean, with Black black and with Black Hat, that's the closest, right? Sure. Black Hat's the closest where he's like, I made a major, I didn't like, it's not like there's like 30 minutes on the cutting room floor, but I made a major sort of story change. Right. But it's still, he's really just rearranging the pieces. That's all. This is an example of a movie that was finished. Yes. Then 30 new minutes were shot. Yes. Then about 30 minutes of the original film were cut. Right, because the cuts are a very similar length. And, and they're both it, about 100 minutes. The scenes that exist in both versions of the film are also cut differently. Yes, yes, That's yes, a huge yes, difference. Yes, not all, but there's a lot that are noticeably cut right, differently. Right, right, because something like Black Hat, it's like, Black okay, Hat. big shift here. You know, and it's things like he, he'll be like, I changed a couple little things. Right. Or like the aliens and Terminator Two directors cuts. It's like those special editions are like I added scenes that I think those are, are more right. It's like character padding, like you know things like that. Yeah. But here's a, like a fundamental difference mm -hmm. is that in the director's cut, you're like, man, this is a film 
of incredible fluid steady cam shots, like long steady cam shots. Right. And in the theatrical cut, no shot lasts longer than like it's 15 so choppy. seconds. It's one of the, yeah, it's, it, there's no character to Even it. in the same scenes, they just cut up those steady cam shots. I believe the score is also different. Everything's different, but um, we're getting yeah. ahead of ourselves. Yeah, okay. Because you know what this is. Wait, what is it? It's playing check with Griffin and David. <laughs> yes. I do feel totally thrown off, don't you? Yeah. I'm not trying to like harp on a thing. Listen to our following episode, which is the first we recorded in a a new studio last time. Oh, sure. And we're also like totally confused. It's weird. Yeah, our rhythms are odd. It's fine. We'll be fine. Hello. Hi. I'm Griffin. I'm David. With us as always is producer Ben. Sitting between us. Between the boys. Producer Solomon. He's got the, you know, he's the... the Producer Solomon. Because it's like there's a divide, you know, he's sort of the king on the throne in between us. I don't know. I like to say Ben Sandwich. (laughs) Yeah, sure. It's a Ben Sandwich. But yeah, sorry guys, we're in a smaller room. Oh, it's fine. Turn on my mic a little bit. It's not your fault. My mic. I mean my headphones, not my mic. Whatever it is. There we go. All right. You got the juice boy. (laughs) (laughs) Turn it all up. Turn it up. Okay, there yeah, we, there go. Okay, we go. I feel like that okay. sounds a little more. Guys, this is a careful process, okay? It's tricky. Because this is a podcast about filmographies. It's about directors who have massive success early on in their career and give a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion products they want. And sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they swing, baby. Sure. Sometimes but they shift. This well, they sometimes they definitely shift. And this is uh, an example of like a shift. He should have been cashing a check after Melvin and Howard. Sure. A small check. Well, isn't this the small check? Or is this, do you but think then this it was more taken, like, They gave him a check. Well, they took him away, right, right, And right. then they, like, repoed all his belongings they that he did. bought with the check. And then he just, uh, like, wrote himself another check the same year, basically. So I, I did a lot of reading so last night and this morning. Yep. And a, a thing, <clears throat> I was reading an interview the Guardian interview? Is that the one you read? I don't know if it was that one, but okay. it seemed like it was transcribed from a print interview. Yeah. Where, uh, so so the transcription was not perfect. Okay. But it seemed to imply that he was shooting Stop Making Sense the same time that he was shooting the reshoots on this. Hmm. Uh, I don't know about that. No, no. That's why I was confused. No. It's the interview you read, the one with the Elaine May story. Yes. Okay. Well, that's the one I read. I think it's the only time he's ever really talked about it. I think usually he'd be like, "Hi, you know, that movie was taken away from me and I I just hate talking. You know, like usually he just sort of shuts it down. But he tells the story in that about the shoot going long, him feeling like he wasn't going to wrap in time to make it to the show. And Ed Harris faked a headache so that they would wrap early. I, there's, I remember that story. Right. You're right. And it seemed like he was saying. That I guess they came really close. But he says later, he says, I moved back to New York and made stop making sense. That's what's weird. So about I, it. I think it was more just okay. probably like they, they were they were close together. Sure. As we know, because this film comes out in 1984. Stop Making Sense comes out in 1984. Yes. You know, so like, yeah. I this mean, this film, was supposed to come out the year prior. Correct. It was supposed to be a big holiday awardsy mm-hmm. movie. And then uh, it got like pushed to May and came out and didn't make much money and, you know, kind of got dumped. And then a year later in June, I came out. 
That is true. That's a true thing. Birthday and, Benny. And only one cut there of the umbilical gourd. Hey, now. Oh, what about that uh, little, you know. Well, I don't want to get, please. I don't right, want to okay, okay. get into this. Oh, yeah, we should have. I don't, we should not get into mm, this. Let's pause that combo. That's a whole other complicated right, that can be a whole. That can be a Patreon episode next Put year. Put it behind the paywall. Right. Well, okay, fine. <laughs> On a scale from one to ten, I just want to do a quick survey of the room. How insane do you feel right now? Because I feel like a ten. You are clearly at a ten. I'm at a six. Ben? I would say. I actually got adjusted. Okay. Yeah, Ben's Ben seems to be. It's like started at nine, but he's sort of like decelerating. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. working on it. It's okay. So, Melvin Howard comes out. 1980. Oh, I should say, this is my series on the films of Jonathan Demme. Yeah, that's it's called Stop Making Podcasts. That's right, and we really should. We really should. But no better evidence than today. It's almost like the universe is trying to tell us to stop making podcasts. Absolutely not. We're going to make them forever. Absolutely? Absolutely not. Napster, lutely not. Maybe on Napster you could have gotten the director's cut back in the day, right? But, uh, think about this as like a reality show. Oh. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes. Like we're showing all the behind the scenes, right? With the level checks like that came earlier in the yes. episode. Yes. But it's all out there, you know? We're not leaving it on the cutting room floor. It's like Survivor where every season they're like, but there's a twist this season. You have to do the thing upside down. The boys and the girls are on different teams, you know? Yeah. Like, this is the episode where they throw a curveball at us and we completely crumble. Right, exactly. We show that we... We're not up to the task and we should all? not be on the island. No, nope, right. absolutely yep. not. Kick us off. Yep. Okay, so 1980, Melvin Howard. Melvin and Howard comes a, out. A modest box office performer. Correct. an Oscar winner in yes. two major categories. Yes. And it kind of announces the emergence of a new major voice in American cinema... Yeah, sure. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Goldie Hawn has a deal at Warner Brothers. She is at this point one of Hollywood's most beloved and I reliable mean, stars. It's been a huge movie star for 15 years. Has has won an Oscar 15 years earlier. She won, right. She won an Oscar, right. 13 years earlier. Cactus Flower, I think it's 69. Yes. Sure. Yeah. And uh, has then just kind of an incredible run. <laughs> We are disoriented by everything going on around us. She has an incredible run. Yeah. And by the early 80s, she has kind of honed in on what a Goldie Hawn movie is. Sure. Right? Private Benjamin becomes like the platonic ideal of a Goldie Hawn comedy. Yeah, that's uh, so I'm looking at her her run in the late 70s. That's 1980 like, on the dot? That's dog? 80, yeah. So you've got like... Um, foul play with Chevy Chase, which was a, a, pr a pretty big hit. She does seems like old times with Chevy Chase, so it's like okay, they right. have a good thing going. Um, as you say, you've got Private Benjamin in eighty, which is a huge hit. Huge uh, hit. She gets a Best Actress nomination. You got um, Best Friends, the Burt Reynolds movie. Mm -hmm. I think is a couple years before Swing Shift. That's eighty two. Yes, um, you which got, is uh, directed by Norman Jewison, but based on Robert Benton's relationship with Jane Curtin's sister, who was a writer for SNL. You just pulled that out of a hat. That's pretty impressive. I was doing a, a Goldie deep yeah, sure, dive sure, sure. last night. And she, yeah, as you say, she's an Oscar winner with Private Benjamin. You have, I feel like, I don't know. There's like a whole other level of legitimacy with that movie. Like that was one of the big performers of the year. She got um, a lead actress nomination. That's what I was gonna, and yeah. it gets, I, Eileen Brennan gets Best Supporting Actress, right? Nomination. I, I guess. And it yeah. gets a screenplay nomination. Yeah. So uh, Nancy Myers is only screenplay nomination. Of course. Right? But uh, that rare phenomenon in which... Sixth a, biggest film of that year. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, 
that rare phenomenon in which a mainstream studio comedy breaks into the Oscars feels like its own insane level of success, like the Mm -hmm. Bridesmaids thing. Mm-hmm. Where it's mm-hmm. like you're not just a big hit. We're we're saying you're a legitimate movie because comedies so rarely do well. Yeah, usually they ignore, especially and back then. Even the more successful a comedy is, the more it seems to get ignored. You know, it's it's then viewed as like populist, whatever. So the fact that that movie makes that big of an impact, I think, makes Goldie Hawn kind of unstoppable at this point in time. Uh, sure, a hundred percent. She you're, yes, as you say, has to deal with Warner Brothers, big star. This is all context for the fact that she essentially was the sort of number one person in the movie. And over Demi. Her producing partner, right around Swing Shift, I think, I don't know if she's working with her at the time of Private Benjamin, which happens right after that, is this woman whose name I'm forgetting now, Anitha and Thea Jones, mm. perhaps. Okay. okay. Um, I will pull up the name in a second. But I don't want to get my phone because I'm worried about changing my position in relation to the microphone. <laughs> because everything we're doing right now is very tenuous. And Thea Silbert. Thank you. Yes. She was a costume designer. She was. Did Chinatown. She did. Got an Oscar nomination for that. That's right. Another film she got an Oscar nomination Julia. for that I'm forgetting. Thank you. Um, you're really going to have to work that computer Famous, hard Famous, I always work the computer. Famous costume designer who also produced like, you know... Half a dozen Goldie Hawn movies, essentially. Right. She becomes like a Overboard partner. and Wildcats. And, you know, and I'm jumping all around here, but I think there really is, I, I have witnessed this a lot. There are two things that can uh, fuck up a movie star and by uh, proxy the films a movie star is making, their vehicles. Okay. Uh, one is if they uh, team up with someone whose job was ostensibly to uh, make them look good. Okay. In a capacity outside of that job. What are you thinking of? I mean, the John Peters Barbara Streisand thing sure, is a perfect right. example. Yes, 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 yes. Where then they suddenly have... He's her stylist and he... Yeah. You have a right-hand person whose job is just to say, like, they're making you look bad. Right. Right. You should be winning this movie, essentially. Right. In, in both a, a visual sense and in sort of a star power sense. Yes. Uh, and in the same way, when I say making them look good, it can be a makeup artist and it can be a personal assistant, right? But people whose jobs were to just help a movie star be the best movie star they could be, then suddenly becoming producers on a film usually spells trouble. Right. The other thing that usually fucks up a movie is when the two leads fall in love. Well, that's, you know, this is a really weird scenario. Everything about this scenario. Okay. Is like, I mean, yeah, this, this is a very unusual situation. It's not that expensive a movie. No. It's not being Although made. It, it goes way over budget. Well, because they reshot it. Of course. Yeah. But I'm just saying cost, that, that but, always puts a burden on a film. Sure. But it's really, it's an unusual movie. It's like Goldie Hawn is the unambiguous powerhouse. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Demme is still a young director who basically has made like one legitimate movie, mm-hmm. you know, after coming up with Corman. Yeah. Um, she is with Kurt Russell, who is still, well, no, he's, he's already a big deal. He is. Cause he had done the, the Elvis miniseries. That, you know, no, right. But, right. Like all that stuff's come out. Uh, like right. his John Carpenter stuff. He's like deep sure. in that. Sure. I'm just double checking. Yeah. Like, you know, the thing is a couple years earlier, but that is, I guess big that trouble is his, in little China is later, sure. but you know, escape from New York has already come right. You know, he's, but, but to Kurt Russell context very quickly. He is a Disney star. Well, right. I mean, I was trying to, ar- I was going to argue like, oh, this is like him coming out of his Disney boyish, but now he's already come out of that. No, yeah. I'd argue it's like, this is a, a different shift for him, which is 
He's a Disney star in the period of the live action Disney yes. films that now are being rediscovered thanks to the uh, Disney uh, plus, plus Twitter cards, thread, yeah. which I think won the Pulitzer Prize it for did, literature yeah. this it was, year. It was good. I liked it. It's a good thread. Um, but all those sorts of movies that were modest performers at the time that n- no one took seriously. And he was the— and he was a boyish, handsome— He was the teenage Dean yeah, Jones. He was yeah, the squeaky clean, exactly. bright smile, yeah, yeah. blue-eyed sort of dude. And then he does the Elvis Macy's, the Carpenter directs, yes. which kind of redefines his career. Yeah. And then Carpenter goes, you're my muse, and makes him the sort of winking, self-knowing right. action hero for his sort of sly right. satire. Puts him in a ton of stuff, right? Right. But this is kind of the— the John Carpenter films are such a hard swing in the other direction from the Disney. Right. That this, this is, is him moving being towards like the face middle. again. Right. You're it's like, can like, he be like a charming? But he, but he's not in this movie. He's supposed to be a jerk. Totally. Which, but anyway, but yes. So but that's you've got, I'm just laying out all the problems. I know. That's another problem is that then they fall in love and they went, why doesn't this movie reflect the chemistry we have in real life? And why isn't Kurt as charming as I find him to be? I don't think it was just that, though. I also think it was the studio being like, holy shit, we've got a genuine publicity situation where two movie stars have fallen in love to beautiful movie stars that's who are going to make element. a child who's going to really get David revved up one day. He love, gets you revved up. Oh, I love Wyatt Russell. He rules. I it's also just one of those up. classic like children where you're like, we squish these two handsome people together, and uh, yeah. look, a third handsome person who looks like both of them. He's such a funny version, a like, like combination like of the two Pokemon, of them. You know, because well, it's a weird thing where like Kurt Russell is notoriously uh, uh, kind, kind of. Uh, uh, what are you saying? What What is this? Kurt Russell <laughs> was notoriously this kind of square guy. Oh, sure, sure, okay. With somewhat square politics, sure. who is uh, borderline uh, jingoistic in mm. his love of America. Yeah, he does love America. Uh, and Goldie Hawn becomes She's famous like for being literally flower the flower child. child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're such a weird couple in that sense, aside from them both being incredibly, like, preternaturally charismatic and, and beautiful. He, he's talked about it, right? Like, he's been like, oh, she wanted nothing to do with me. Like, we'd known each other because we'd worked each other. They were in a Disney film together when they were one of the ago. 60s ones. And yeah. she was just like, you know, he has some cute sort of meet cutie story yeah. about how, like, at the beginning of the movie, she was, like, not interested. And by the end, they were in love, right? Like, they're it was an odd couple like that. Right. And then Wyatt Russell is the perfect combination of the two of them. He's I like know. a hippie jock. It's true. Oh, God. Him and everybody wants some. Oh, he's so good. Oh, very, yes, he David's, is. Anyway. David was, like, holding on to his eyebrows like he was trying to rip them off his head. It looked like his Twitter photo. Whew. But yes, the, I'm just trying to set out all the different elements that come into play. Right. So I think that was really like working up. against Demi. Obviously, as you say, Goldie is working against him. And so now there's a really good sight and sound piece. Yeah. I think that was published after Demi died called Swing Shift, the Unmaking of a Masterpiece, um, which uh, this guy has seemingly watched both cuts 40 times. Uh, it, yes, but I will say I no the first sight and sound piece is from a long time ago because Demi references it. Oh, really? you're right. It yeah. was just. I think there's it, a it may have gotten republished. Top, it was yes. republished yeah, exactly. because of that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yes, there's a very detailed uh, sight and sound piece that's essentially like really going through mm-hmm. all the differences, mm-hmm. but is also just like Swing Shift is a not very good movie, and Swing Shift, the Demi Cut, is like one of the great American films of its decade. That's his argument. He's, right. like, 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 he's not just like, this is a curio. No. He's basically like, a masterpiece was lost. And, you know, and, we, and it was like, it was this like heartbreaking thing. Who wrote that article just because I want to give them credit? Because I'm going to be leapfrogging a lot of the stuff that they said. 
along with Stevenberg, Feinberg, the, the Guardian article. And then there's also a BFI entry on the film that has a weird amount of detail. But here's the stuff I pieced together from all three. OK, writer of this film. The original writer on the film. Um, sure. Uh, Nancy Dowd. Uh, who wrote the original draft of Coming Home, which was then rewritten. She's somewhat disowned. She, she thought also they made it very Slapshot. sentimental. She, mm-hmm. she also wrote Slapshot. She had a bunch of uncredited. Uh, yeah, she's a writer. She had a bunch of story credits. Worked on SNL one year. Big, big deal in the 70s, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, she writes Swing Shift as an original screenplay. I think somewhat to as a corrective to what she felt, how they had sentimentalized Coming Home. Right. People point out that it has a very similar narrative spine uh, to Coming Home. Now, originally, by all accounts, her script was about Lucky and the Christine Lottie character, who had a different name at the time. Sure. And the Goldie Hawn character was very much a supporting character. It was not a love triangle as much as it was a film about the two of them. Um... It kicks around for years. It almost gets made at some point in the late 70s with a combination of people I'm forgetting. Uh, And then in the early 80s, Goldie Hawn finds it. And she likes it. And she says, this is what I'd like to do. And she reaches out to Demi because she liked Melvin Howard. Yeah, and he just won an actress and Oscar. And yeah, he's a young, exciting director. They hire uh, Ron Nygaard. Is that his name? Yes. Uh, who later no, goes? Wait, wait, wait. You mean um, Ron Nyswanner? Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, who later goes on to write Philadelphia for Demi to rewrite the script because the more she worked on it with Demi, she realized she didn't want to play the Christine Lottie part because it kind of conflicted with her image. Goldie Hawn's thing was, you know, being the cutesy ball of light right. in the world, and the entire crux of Christine Lottie's character is her fighting to retain agency in a world that views her as a tramp. Uh-huh. And that was a little too hard-edged and a little too morally dubious for Goldie Hawn. Sure. So they rewrite the script and make this supporting character now the lead of the film. And it becomes more coming home-ish then. Yeah, and also Nyswanner is the script. That's what everyone says. Everyone says that when... Demi was shooting off of that script. That was his draft. The weird thing is that uh, the film ends up with one solo screenwriting credit, which is a person who doesn't exist. Right. Which is weird. It's very weird. It's a pseudonym. It's like an Alan Smithy, but it's not that. They shoot this film. Yep. They test it. I think audiences are a little confused, mostly probably because they're like, where's the Goldie Hawn comedy here? Right. Where's the fish out of water? Where's the she changes people with her effervescence? You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and Warner Brothers freaks out and Goldie Hawn of all freaks out. And they're looking at the Kurt Russell of it all and they're going, why isn't this having more of like Hepburn and Tracy energy? Right, right, right. So they bring in a bunch of screenwriters to try to rewrite the movie to make it more of like an oil and vinegar, like screwball rom-com. And one of the first people they bring in is Elaine May. Can I read this? I've got Please. it up. Okay. So this is Jonathan Demi talking about how this movie was essentially, I don't even know if they had a test screening. I read um, that there was a test screen, but everyone should read this Guardian interview, which is so good if you can find it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, because like essentially the executives definitely tested the movie and they were mm-hmm. like, no, thank you. Like, right. They were sort of all the problems you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Like where this is Goldie Hawn should be, you know, 
the 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 the, the lovable dits that's right. like you know like going to be an overboard in a couple of years like that's you know the Goldie Hawn everyone's asking for and overboard is what I think they wanted out of this yes. which is like Kurt's a man and Goldie's right. a woman and God they can't get along until they do right um so first he says that some other high priced Hollywood writer who he won't mention uh comes in and writes some scenes. Robert Town apparently was. I believe that's who he's brought in. To, right? Yeah. Um, but then he also says that was the second person. The mm-hmm. first person they went to was Elaine May. Obvious she, first choice in this time. Right. She'll write you screwball comedy. Of course. Mm-hmm. Elaine May comes in to see the movie. She has lunch with Goldie and uh, Goldie's partner, whoever. I was trying that to totally not, threw me off. So. I was trying to not interrupt. Ben, can you turn my volume up a little? Just, just say it because it just, it just uh, okay. makes me think that something's wrong. Okay. So Elaine May comes in. She watches the movie in the original form. Just edit it out. Come on, guys. It's okay, right? It's of course it's okay. It's just this is such a fucking shitty situation. <laughs> it's fine. Come on. If anything, we'll cut in a testimonial. Yeah. Everyone back to zero, please. All right. Thank you. Elaine comes in. She watches the movie. She meets with Goldie, walks in, I think, uh, sees Jonathan and says, are you Jonathan? What a wonderful movie. This is fabulous. Are you guys out of your mind? Mm-hmm. So she sees the movie and is basically like, hey, like, this is a great movie. Like, you don't need me. Uh-huh. You already have a product right yeah, here. Done. Release it. And they start talking to her like they want more of a Tracy and Hepburn kind of thing is what Demi's saying, mm-hmm. right? Which is what you're talking yeah. about. Uh, and she says, well, those, that sounds great for some movie. <laughs> right. But they go completely against the ecology of this movies that now exists and you'll never pull it off. And Demi remarks like, I've, I love that phrase, the ecology of a movie. But it's so spot on because you watch the two cuts and so much of it is like, I, I've been thinking a lot about when when Rees was on the show on sure. our Spirit Away episode, yep. and he said that he feels like most movies, especially most good movies, right. are either puzzles or dreams. Right? It's resonated. It's a great. It's a great thought. Yes. And watching this, I had this thought that most great directors, or at least interesting directors, sure. are either anthropologists or engineers. I'm kind of on something here. Sure, right? keep going, keep going. Because there's like you know the Fincher, uh, Coen yes, Brothers, sure. Hitchcock, Precision. They're making a machine for you. I'm going to have everything perfectly worked out, and I hire people who are professionals, and they know exactly and execute gene, what and I want to do. Like see a shot in their head. I see it in my head. Magic, yeah. right? And you just have to execute that. And they'll work with people, but they'll work with people to execute the very specific thing they had in their mind. And there are people like Demi who just kind of and Ang Lee is another example of this. Yep. Who want to like sit down and feel the room and let actors define their roles and bring in collaborators who can bring him ideas that he never even would have had on his own and just sit and wait and study and experiment mm-hmm. and wait for the results mm-hmm. to come in, you know? And that's like. I think that's why this was so traumatic for him. Yes. Because it really seems like it was a very traumatic experience for him because. Mm-hmm. It's one thing. So many of these situations. What was mm-hmm. some director's cut recently? I feel like this was just coming up. Uh, the Snyder Cut? <laughs> I mean, there's that. Sure. That's not even the worst example where it's like. The Midsummer director's cut. No, I mean, that's like different. a thousand examples. Talk right? about the, the Snowman. Snowman. Hmm? Talk about that Snowman. <laughs> Snowman. No, yeah. but the Justice League is a good example. Sure. Midsummer, the director's cut is like basically like. Here's the longer version. He's just like, right, I have more and I like yeah, it. And right. I understand that movies have to be a certain length. Yeah. So, like, you know, but if you're interested. 
That's more the sort of like, sure. look, if you're a, more the, like the man or Cameron, like Cotton hey, Club, is that the one you were thinking? Well, of? that's an interesting one. That's an interesting. One. That's more along the lines of this. this. But right. no, the Justice League thing is more mm-hmm. like that's a great example of like the movie is probably a mess no matter what. Right. Sure. They're, they're, that's a film where there was a, a sort of unsalvageable energy. And in trying to salvage it, the studio is probably just making it more unsalvageable, right? Because it's, you know, you, you've just got this mess on your hands. Right. This is the thing where he made a movie. It was good. Yes. People watched it and were like, hmm, I don't like this movie. It's bad. And he was like, I think it's good. And they were like, no, no. Well, Rip the guts out. Right. Yeah. The, the I'll do anything example is you watch the theatrical cut of it. I'll do anything. <laughs> That's another one. That's a perfect. Right. It's where it's like, those are two messes. Right. But you Both watch the cut mess. and you go, the director's cut must make sense of this. Yeah, exactly. No. No, it's, it's like doesn't. it's actually it's a salvage job. It's, it's actually right. worse. Right. That's what's so crazy. Right. That's what's so bizarre about this. And let's let's say here, I as a, as a thought experiment had us watch these in different orders. That's right. That's right. This is Griffin's idea. It was a it was a fun idea. Thank you. So I watched the director's cut first, and then watched the Goldie Hawn cut. And you did the opposite. That's right. The director's cut has never been commercially released. No, no, there no. is like an open mat VHS it's quality. A VHS. Yeah transfer that has been digitized and certainly has diminished it is a little hard to make out in here oh for 100 percent. no it's not in good shape it's in bad shape it's watchable it is watchable i would say maybe more watchable than whatever the fucking i'll do anything cut i watched was but you know a lot of similar lines yeah similar you know. lines uh of course i'll do anything also was a musical so it really would have benefited from you being able to like you know hear things clearly and all that oh you want to hear albert <laughs> brooks belting it out in perfect 5.1 Dolby Digital Surround Sound. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, but still, nonetheless, there is a cut. It is this, yes, it's this sort of VHS thing. Right. And you watch that. Uh, yes. It's been going around for years. Demi seems to think, or seemed to think, when he rarely spoke of this film, that it would be impossible. That it's all gone. Yeah. Now, there are many films in our lifetime that were thought to be all gone in the same kind of way. The, the thought is that Warner Brothers literally threw out that footage. Yes. That's insane. It's insane. Yeah. They trashed his, right. Yeah. But like, but the tapes do exist. I mean, he's, you know. The tapes exist off of. He's thinking in a more pre-digital sense. Like you can put something online, you know, it'll last forever. Yes. I mean, not uh, forever. I, I pray that someday someone fucking finds this. And oh, sure. Like if you could actually like restore the movie. Because yeah. there was, it's not like it only ever existed on like an avid. His claim is, is no. For sure. Right. So it would have to be some old executive is like, oh, actually, I, I did. Right. It would have to be one of those weird, like, actually, I had a whole, I kept it. But that Guardian interview is from like 2002. Uh, I don't know. It's early. It's him either promoting, I think, Truth About Charlie or Manchurian Candidate. Beloved. So it's from a long time Jesus ago. Christ. It's 98. Yeah. So, I mean, shortly after that, not shortly after that, but in the six or seven years after that, Warner Brothers does a kick of doing a lot of restorations mm-hmm. where they take like the big red one mm-hmm. and they restore the removed the scenes from The Exorcist. Yeah. Like they start doing a lot That's of- That's true. That's true. And people kept on thinking like, is Swing Shift going to be next in the mix? But an example that like gives me hope is that for years and years, everyone thought the original cut of Little Shop of Horrors was dead. To a degree that the first DVD was released with the black and white VHS quality version of the ending. Right. And David Geffen had them pull the DVD from the shelves because he said, I don't want people seeing it in this quality. I won't release it until it exists in perfect quality. And like five years ago, they found it. So maybe so. Maybe someday they'll find it. Maybe someday they'll find it. 
Um, but as as it is right now, you can really only watch like a bootleg of the director's cut. And nonetheless, so so you watched that first. I watched that first. So I was watching uh, a process of subtraction. Mm-hmm. I was watching the proper film and seeing what got removed. And you were watching the addition of the elements that right. make the I film just, coherent. I just, you know, rented the damn thing on iTunes, yeah. queued it up, watched it with my uh, partner. We watched together. We were like. Humble break. It's back, baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and. Um, we were just, I think my experience with the movie, uh, let me speak about it. I'm going to speak, sure. on, this. speak, gonna on, speak this. on this. Speak on this. Speak on this, my friend. So uh, I watched this movie. I am very fascinated by that period in American life. It is so crazy to think about basically that like most American men from the age of like 20 to 35 mm-hmm. vanished from the country. Yep. It is such a bizarre thing to think about. Totally I was insane. recently rewatching A League of Their Own, which is like, a light and wonderful movie, mm-hmm. but it's also about the same thing where it's yeah. like, imagine just like everyone is old. Like, you know, like, you know, like you go to like the dance hall and it's a bunch of retired, right? Like that weird sort of surreal yeah. Lynchian kind of like, it's like the premise of why the last man. And, and yeah, exactly. And then so beyond that, obviously, you know, you have all these like very real things that women had to deal with, especially, you know, women who are suddenly like in this household, they had to run all by themselves and they had to earn money and all this shit. So this is, a, I, I love this period. Mm-hmm. I love this uh, concept. Yes. And so the first 45 minutes of the movie we're watching, I'm like, this is good. This is a good movie. Like I, I love it's seeing fun. this and like. Uh, Christine Lottie is fucking killing it. And Goldie, I am kind of like, what? She doesn't know what she doesn't have a handle on this. Like, cause she's not playing sort of classic Goldie character, right? She seems a little lost. She's not great with the melancholy stuff. She's trying to be funny, but like, there's not really a lot of funny stuff. That's what you're thinking. Watching the theatrical, the theatrical that Kurt shows up and I'm like, well, I want to fuck this guy. So I I, I keep yelling about how I want to fuck him. His bone structure is (sighs) insane. It is. Um, And then I would say like halfway through the movie, we really both started every 10 minutes, like looking at each other and being like, what is this about? Where's this going unravels? And there's the pivotal thing that Ed Harris comes home. We'll Mm -hmm. talk about it. But, you know, there's a scene where Ed Harris comes off. He's on shore leave or whatever. He just sees them together, the three of them. And then we sort of cut ahead and like he just knows. Right. Like, you know, there's these additional scenes and he just kind of figures it out. Yeah. And Joanna was like, so he just figured it out. And I was like, yeah, I guess he just figured it out. Right. He just kind of got the vibe. But I, both of us are kind of like a little unfulfilled by that. The whole movie feels like that. Right. Where you're like, we're I, like yeah, I guess, okay. I don't know. That right. just happens. There's a lot of mental leaps that you can make because yeah. it's a movie. And in the last half of the movie, that's what's happening. Like there's this scene where people are, where Holly Hunter is a new guy. And I'm like, wait, wait, when did she get the new guy? You know, like, because previously her only big scene was is her, her crying when she her learns right. her husband is dead. And so you're just like, I think that was the guy who delivered the news was her right, new boyfriend. Like, all this, the yeah. director's cut has a lot of scenes that sort of sprinkle in more context. And obviously it's just a movie that makes more sense. It was assembled that way. Yeah. And so we watch it by the end. I'm just like, when the fuck is this thing over? And mm-hmm. it's not a long movie. Yeah. And I'm j- I really Both got cuts frustrated. Are pretty much the They're same. They're hundred minutes. They're hundred minutes each. Right. I think the director's cuts hundred and one. Like yeah. it's literally like that. And we turn it off. And we were just like, eh, I don't. know. We were both like a little frustrated. Mm-hmm. And that obviously, I'm saying to her like, ah, there's actually this director's cut. She doesn't give a shit. Um, but like, she so knows that she's leaving you. <laughs> no, but it is. I can imagine if you're watching it in that order, this, like, you're like, do I just have to watch this movie again with more scenes exactly. added to it? So I queue it up. Is it just going to be an expanded version? So I queue up the director's cut. Yeah. 
And I'm like, the next day, I, watch, you know, I, did, mm-hmm. I did a, give myself a break. I watched them back to back like a lunatic. That is lunatic. Yeah. That's lunatic level. But yeah. that's classic you. I'm, well, I'm a lunatic. And the first half of the director's cut is so similar to the actual movie. Not at, like, but on like its face. Broadly, broadly. That I was almost like, like this, this has been overhyped for me. Sure. Like, cause I'm noticing little editing changes and stuff, but I'm still like, get out of here masterpiece yeah or whatever you know like get out of here sight and sound guy mm-hmm. who's like you won't believe it it's one of the mm-hmm. great american movies and then suddenly everything changes and everything. starts to make sense right and i recommend you should go back and watch them both again the other way I, <laughs> i'm thinking about it honestly <laughs> no. like i'm so fascinated by these two films and i could not believe how good the movie was yeah um on rewatching it in this director's cut that basically just like there's all kinds of changes that we can try and talk about, but it just sort of, it feels like a Jonathan Demi movie. I guess is the best way to describe it. It feels empathetic. It feels like a slice of life about a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. It feels like it's more about this workplace and this relationship between Hazel and Kay, you know, mm-hmm. Kurt Russell is very much a supporting character. Mm-hmm. Like all the men in the movie, all the men in the movie are very much supporting characters who are sort of in and out mm-hmm. They're disruptive, they're emotional, but they're not like, you know, we don't care about them sure. in the same way. Yeah. And I turned up and I was like, I can't believe it. I could not believe it. I texted you immediately. Yeah. Like stunned. So the other sort of legend about the recut is that Goldie Hawn felt insecure. This is a legend. A legend. Unconfirmed legend. Unconfirmed yes. legend. But it, worth acknowledging that this had always been a whisper. Because even at the time of this film's making, it was being written up a lot as this year-long battle between Goldie Hawn right. and this up-and-coming director. That um, <clears throat> she apparently felt that Christine Lottie was outshining her in the movie. Yeah. Which I- Christine Lottie is in that position where it's just like, here's an actor who has the goods and is finally being given their first big role, and they're just ready for it. It's one of those like lightning in a bottle things where it's like, this is just someone who is right there, is uh-huh. so prepared for this moment and shows up and makes the most of it. It is not an incredibly showy performance. It's an incredible performance. But it's an incredibly good I performance, think, I right? Think it's really incredible. What? And it is one of those classic, right? You're just like, who is this and how do I get more of them? Like, right. You know, like totally that emerging thing. It's, it's like Carrie Mulligan in an education where it's just like, sure. okay, you're a new person now. <laughs> Great. You're here. Right good. Welcome. So tall. Keep making movies. So tall. Um, there's that incredible shot in the director's cut, I think, where her, uh, Lottie, <clears throat> Goldie Hawn and Holly Hunter are all standing together. And Lottie is like five foot 11. Yes. And Goldie Hawn is like Goldie's like five six. She's like regular sort of right. Yeah. And, and Holly Hunter, Hunter is, is like two, four five. two. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it is like small, medium, large. At one point, someone tried to rivet Holly Hunter into a plane. They did because they, they just thought she was a little rivet. They put her on a rivet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now that ain't a pinch pin. She fit. That's Holly Hunter. Um, what was I going to say? The Lottie thing though is fascinating because Lottie gets a best supporting actress nomination for this movie anyway. Even though this movie came out in May, was a flop totally. and is surrounded by death, she's still so good that she gets an Oscar. Totally. Nomination. And in a weird way, if one of the goals had been to minimize Christine Lottie by centering Goldie Hawn more, yeah. the movie becomes so jumbled that Christine Lottie comes out of the Warner Brothers cut as one of the only coherent right. elements. Yes, it's true. So yeah. she rises to the top. But it's one reason I don't actually buy that it was like sort of an actor war thing. I think it's more just... 
Lottie is going to suffer because Goldie is like, this should be a rom-com. This should be a love triangle. This should be a, you know, me, Kurt, and then like Ed Harris or whoever, you know, the third spoke like we got to put in more Kurt. We got to put in more Kurt. Sure. Why and, 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 yes. Yeah. And then, then so, you know, the Hazel relationship just kind of diminishes. And then there are moments in the movie in the mm-hmm. the Goldie cut where like she, Lottie and uh, Goldie's relationship is mm-hmm. really important. And you're like, do they even care about each other? Like, I, I don't get this. Like the, the ecology comment is fascinating because yeah. there are things watching these two cuts back to back that feel like the Kuleshev effect. Where you're watching the exact same scene. Uh, you're talking with, about the uh, Kaminsky method. I'm sorry. Just oh, go. I'm sorry. It feels like the Kaminsky method, America's favorite comedy series. Right. The Kuleshev effect. You know what I'm talking about. No. You don't know about you. you no, know, I you're going to know when I explain what this is. But it was that test done by like um, uh, <laughs> the Russians. Um but like uh, yeah, the study in sort of the art oh, yeah, of montage. Oh, yeah, no, I know. Which, right, yeah, yeah, okay. Where they filmed I, yes, a close-up yes, yes, of yes, like yes. the most famous actress of the time in Russia and just said, with a blank expression, we're just going to film you for like two minutes. It's an actor, I believe. I believe it's a lady. Am I wrong about this? I think you're wrong. Okay. Isn't it a man? I think it's a lady. It's a man. This man. Well, I'm not wearing my glasses and computer's on the other side of the screen. Excuse me while I put my spectacles on. Okay, it is. I'm sorry. I'll eat a turd. The point is, it's a man sitting with a totally blank neutral expression, and then they keep on cutting to other things within his sight line. A little girl in a casket, a bowl of soup. The third one here is a pretty lady on a fainting couch. And the idea is that if you cut between these things, the audience projects onto that face how they think he would respond to those things. The sadness of a child being dead, the hunger in a bowl of soup, the lust in looking at a woman, right? Uh, it's a good movie. But he's doing that. This movie slaps. Yes, 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 yes. And there's this weird thing where, like, there are scenes in this that I watch in the director's cut and I go, oh, this is an incredible performance from Goldie Hawn in this scene. And then the exact same scene happens in the Warner Brothers cut, unfucked with, and the performance feels totally flat. Right. And is entirely about what scenes happen before and after. And not just in terms of, oh, story details are missing, but even as Elaine May would say, the ecology of the movie being different. It really is that. It's like, it's like they, it's you're in Australia and you, you brought a frog and now all the frogs are multiplying and they're eating the, you know, bamboo or whatever it is that happened. Right. Like it's like they brought in these extra Kurt Russell scenes and everyone's like, well, everyone likes Kurt Russell. He's sexy. What the hell? How bad could this be? And then suddenly it's like, oh my God, like all the levels are off and they can't get him back in line. What's weird is it's not just extra Kurt Russell scenes. It's also like the score is different. Uh, Yes. Well, right. Yeah. The score is very annoying. Really the, fucking um, Goldie stupid. cut. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Really annoying. Like one of just one of those classic, like, ah, I, I get it. Like yeah. so, no, totally well, you didn't have to right. Yeah, you didn't have to And like when it's a comedy, the score is like too chipper. When it's a romance, the score is like too swooning. When there's tension, it becomes a fucking like Z grade Bernard Herman score. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. right there's right, the thing right, where right, there's right. the motor that's gonna fall on the woman. Yeah. And in the regular version, there's no score, and it's just the tension of Goldie noticing it. Right. And in the Warner Brothers cut, they literally play, like, shitty Vertigo-esque music. Right. Um, but also, they uh, attack Fujimoto, regular collaborator of Demi. 
gets fired for the reshoots because they thought he was making Goldie look too old. Huh. Sure. So there's like the 30 minutes of scenes added and sometimes even the little pieces and scene, you can tell the difference because uh, she is so much more brightly and gauzily lit. The scenes are more flat. But the other thing is in the Demi version, Fujimoto, it's like so much steady cam. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, and there's also these like, these wipe montages. She does weird wipes that, that she hasn't great. done since Cage I know, I know. Where they're weird, like, triangle wipes yeah. and things. Um, but but it is, like, it's this very fluid movie. Move me. This very fluid movie of camera movements guiding you through a larger space and being able to observe the behavior of all these different people. And uh, in the Warner Brothers cut, even in the first half of the movie, where there is not a lot changed on a story level, those are cut down. And it feels like Goldie Hawn doesn't want this much of the movie where she is not at the center of the frame. Yeah. Well, you're I like, look, you're right. I don't know. I'd love someone. has. She's never talked about no, it, right? Never. No. Um, um, I mean, well, no, I mean, I feel like she talked about the time and she said, like, look, this is an ego thing. She was very much like I was trying to rescue a movie. Yeah. She was like the film he screamed was a mess. I was trying to save it in whatever way I could. I didn't succeed, but no one could have fixed this thing. Right, right, right. She was sort of doing the what I'm talking about, the the, the I'll do Lenny, the, the Justice League, right? right? It's like, look, this, it's, it's the best I could. We had to lose I hammered it into a shape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, which is not what happened, as Demi has said. He's basically like, I presented them with a complete movie that was good, mm-hmm. and they made me shoot more scenes that were bad. And then I cut them in and it was worse. Or they cut them, you know. He contractually had to shoot them. Yes. Or Um, else lose his status as director of the film. They made him fire his screenwriter. He knew that new editors were going to come on. Yeah. He says, I had to cooperate them. I had to shoot them because of the contract. Um, And he talked about, and this is a lot of, protect the movie in a way. This is a lot of Demi being a mensch. But he talked about, it's like, it was such a terrible thing to do. And it's not just about the ego of look at my vision. It's about, they were erasing the work that everyone trusted me with. Actors are giving me performances and cinematographers are giving me images and people are writing a score for me and I'm telling them that I'm going to protect it and keep it intact. And all these things are getting fucked with or replaced entirely. I just remember finding myself sitting in the bathtub at 630 in the morning just crying is uh, one thing he's saying when he's talking about all the things you're talking about. And he said, yeah, they like hired someone to write the reshoot scenes. It was uh, a writer he does not name. Uh, who eventually got hired, who did it because he was trying to get Warner Brothers to greenlight another script he had written. So he thought they would put him in good graces. Right. And he delivered the pages and they thought they were bad. So then they had someone else rewrite them and they shot him over four days. And he was there and he was like, look, I have not my DP, some other guy. They Bill hired, Fraker, who he likes. Who he likes. Yeah. yeah but yeah, is yeah, now yeah. mostly hired to try to make all the actors look younger and prettier. Yes. Yes. Because the original version had too much grit. What? Okay. And the actors, Goldie is primarily concerned with coming off like classic Goldie. And so he was like, I would just sit there and I would go to the cinematographer and say, so what do you want to do? And they'd show me when they were done and I would go, okay. And I would go, Goldie, what do you want to do? And she would tell me and I would go, okay. And I was just sitting there and babysitting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And it just sounds like this fucking miserable experience. Uh, They look at it. The new stuff doesn't work. He's no. like, I, I will happily take two of these minutes. There are two of the 30 minutes we shot that I think I could use. And they went, fuck you. And at that point, he was essentially off the movie and yeah. it was out of his hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They trashed the score. 
at that point, right. He's like, look, I'm going to go make Stop Making Sense. Right. Which you realized was kind of the movie that saved him. Saved yeah, very much so. And also is a movie where he's like, can we celebrate pure creativity? Right. And can I do it in a way that's full collaboration, not yeah. just with David Byrne, but with everyone on stage right. and really highlight the work of everyone on stage. And they says from 84 on, I made a rule that I wasn't going to make a movie that wasn't fun. I wasn't going to work with people that I don't like. Yeah. Uh, uh, let me find it. I and something know. wild feels like such a celebration of like, I'm going to have fucking fun. I would continue. I would hope to continue making movies, but only with people I like. So that's my new rule since 1984. I wonder if he, I, yeah, I feel, I mean, he's never had a legendarily bad experience making a movie again, obviously. Like, it's no, not, those not two like there's interviews, another situation like this. Those two interviews are done before, uh, truth about Charlie. Yeah. Uh, so who knows? I don't know how he felt about that film. I don't think he felt bad about that movie. I think America felt bad about yeah. that movie. But I don't think he was like, this is a mess, I'm sorry. Like, sure. I think he made the movie he wanted to make. Yeah. I think I think after this, he's basically, there's, I can't actually say on Mike, but there's one movie I heard about that he was not, he did not love making. Interesting. I'll tell you off Mike. Okay. I, I shouldn't even, yeah, I'll tell you off Mike. Here's what, for me, the demi-cut of the movie is about. Okay. And it takes a little while to crystallize, but when you realize sure. what it's sort of saying and what it's interested in, it feels very cogent yeah, yeah, yeah. and cohesive, right? This weird fucking period in American history, as you said, where like suddenly 80% of our males disappear. And society is now like actual children, old men. Sure. Uh, uh, people who are sick. Yeah, people who are like were four F and probably had like a chip on their shoulder about it, totally. right? Like you know they couldn't right. go serve. So they're men who feel somewhat emasculated. One hundred percent. People with money and status able to sort of circumvent the system at sure. a certain level. Although I think in World War Two is not that it, much. Yeah, because not like it was cowardice. Like not it's not much. like Vietnam where it was a little more like look, that, no one wants to saying. go over that's, there. That's a right. small group, and they are mostly the proud cowards. They sure, are proud sure, to be sure. cowards, right? And then you have sort of like fucking political radicals like, you know, I mean, Kurt Russell jokes that he's a communist and that's why he's not in the war. Right. He says he's a Japanese spy. Yes. Um, but no, but in the, in the, uh, whatchamacallit, he, in the longer makes, version, he, he goes makes, on a longer run. He makes a bunch of jokes. It's what, I mean, clearly in that way of like, he doesn't really want to talk about it. So he has like right. a bunch of funny lines. Totally. Right? right. But it's mostly, yes. Men who feel emasculated by the fact that they're not physically fit enough to join the war and old men. Yeah. And so in this weird period, women were asked to step up and join the workforce and replace their husbands in their jobs, especially, you know, uh, uh, building planes and such, which is why Rosie the Riveter became like such a, a fucking I iconic image. Um, but it was this weird contradictory thing of the government saying, women, you need to join the workforce. Our country needs you. But the second they showed up to work, all the men went, fuck you. You don't belong here. Sure. Don't think we accept you. Sure. That's what I, I love. All that stuff. Love all that. Charles stuff. Napier is, is sort of in this movie. Love all that. The, stuff. Uh, the hostel. Right. You know, yeah. And Goldie Hawn and her husband, Ed Harris, are two fairly boring, waspy, conservative people. Sure. They live in a little cul-de-sac. They have a quiet life. She doesn't seem to have that much of a personality because it feels like she's never had the chance to figure out who she was 100%. because she she's was like, kind of told so many women of her generation. That, that's the, 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 you, the, you like don't worry yourself about that. Right, you don't right, need right, to have right, an inner life. Right. 
And there's this person, this one, her neighbor mm-hmm. who's always walking by in these fabulous outfits. And Harris is always and calling her Harris tramp. is like, ah, oh, that tramp. That fucking tramp. And she's like, isn't she a singer? And he's like, singer, my foot. Yeah. Sings the tramp blues. <laughs> they both end up at the same factory. Yes. Working, working the, the same shift. line. Working the swing shift. And they sort of slowly, reluctantly become friends. Although Goldie makes the first overture. Because she doesn't understand the idea yeah. that this woman could be hurt because she doesn't think about someone having that much self-respect. Sure. 100%. Yeah. She just tries to do this sort of like, hey, we're in the we're neighbors. And she's like, do you think I'm mute? Yeah. Right. Like, do you think I'm deaf, dumb, and blind? You call me a tramp every single day of my life. Um, but but the shift of the movie is, I mean, the the titular swing shift is not just the hours they are working. Four to twelve. Swing shift. Working four to twelve. I had a job. You worked a swing that. shift. Yeah. Really? Overnight at FedEx, loading trucks. You worked loading trucks at FedEx. How was it? Uh, I lasted three months. It sounds like it'd be really tough. It was the worst. When was this? Well, the problem was I would party before I went to work. What an absolutely <laughs> ridiculously bad. Idea. You would party up until four p.m. <laughs> three p or three a.m. And then okay. I would show up, and I never really— Oh, you worked the opposite. You worked 4 a.m. to noon? That's what I thought they were doing. No, they're working 4 p.m. to midnight. Cut it all out! <laughs> no, but I, went, I, went, I, went, I like this FedEx stuff. Yeah, so you were, you were working the night shift. I mean, you're working the deep I night. Think they, I believe they call that the graveyard shift. Yeah, the graveyard, exactly. Yeah. Uh, okay, yeah, so I was a graveyard man, uh, and I got uh, fired because I was sleeping in a truck— and the boxes were just piling up on the conveyor belt. I will say, <laughs> unfortunately, I think uh, grounds for dismissal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wasn't doing his job him. because uh, asleep. Yes. <laughs> well, but is there also was there just like a culture of like I feel like the guys who work that job are just like salty dogs. They're salt boys, and like it's a lot of a lot of chatter. Yeah, smoking blunts. Mm. Well, sure, sure, mm. cool stuff. Mm. Speak on that. Speak on that. <laughs> sure. Uh, Dutch master. Mm. I am indeed. Mm. Who are your blunts? Uh, Dutch master. Know, Dutch I'm master, sorry. Philly, yeah. uh, White Owl, uh, Optimo. Gotcha. I'm actually pretty surprised how many blunt brands I know. Go back to the movie. So they're yeah. on the swing shift. Well, and so, no, titular, so to, you're to saying me, the swing is, you know, the, the swing is. In the absence of a husband and society where now suddenly they are more involved. Sure. Goldie Hawn starts to figure out who she is as a person. And they are a community in a way that like they haven't really been before. Right. right. That Christine Lottie sort of swings her over to a different way of living mm-hmm. where she actually experiments with who she could be for the first time. Yes. And Kurt Russell is but a part of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, he's this the, charming The Goldie Hawn is very much like... This is a movie about a girl who works a job, mm-hmm. makes a couple friends, but in working that job has an affair with the hottest guy. Yes. And whereas the, yeah, the movie, we, the, the director's cut is much more right. He is, he's very peripheral. Cause I think she was trying to make it like wildcats. Like, wouldn't it be funny if Goldie Hawn ran a football team? Like what's right. a place Goldie shouldn't be? <laughs> you know? Sure. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there is this little bit of triumph in terms of her becoming like the lead man, but it's yep. not a fish out of water comedy. Not at all. 
And what works so well- It's very collective. Her performance, which I think is incredibly good. It's in good the in Demi-Cut. the, it's good in the, it's better in the demi I think it's incredibly good. I don't know if I, I do. I was watching it and I was like, this is so interesting. I've never seen her do anything like this but before. But that also might be a, a symptom of our flip. That I, I was so. so against her performance in the- uh, I think so. Golden oh, cut. because in the theatrical cut, it's a nightmare. It, it makes zero sense as a character. And it feels very forced. What I found interesting in the demi-cut was she's playing someone kind of devoid of the natural light and charisma that Goldie Hawn has. And there's the scene where Kurt Russell asks her about herself and she starts talking about Jack, her husband, and their life. He said, I didn't ask about Jack. I asked about you. And she goes, well, I'm not interesting. I don't have anything going on. Right. And it's like she's a person who her entire life is defined by the relationship she has with her husband. And in the absence of her husband, she doesn't know who she is. Yes. Her husband's boring, too. He's fine. He's fine. He's fine. He's a basic bitch. Yeah, he's a bit of a basic bitch. He's a bit of a basic bitch. Um, but it's this weird shift in society in which women figure out who they are for the first time. This woman finds out who she is for the first time. Has a friend for the first time. Sure. Autonomy for the first time. All You're of making that. money. All of that. Yeah. But then this weird thing of, of course, then, the war ends and the men come back and they're expected to go back home. Scram. Yep. It's not just expected. They were obliged. They were contractually obliged to give up their jobs when uh, the war was over. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. You helped us keep the economy alive. You helped us keep our boys up in the air. But also, we're never going to give you any credit for it. (sighs) And now go back to working in the kitchen. That scene, which I believe is in both cuts, of where the planes are flying over. I think they come at different times. she said, I made that. And we made that. It's great. It's great. (sighs) The difference is. This is what fascinates me. Anyway, yes, the difference is. The Lottie version ends with her back together with Jack. Or the, the, the Goldie cut. The, the, the Call Goldie. it the Goldie no, cut. No, no, no. I'm sorry. The Warner Brothers cut is what I mean. Yeah, the, the Goldie War- cut. I'm getting all confused. The Demi cut. There's a Demi cut and a Goldie cut. No, I know which ones are which. I forgot which one I was saying. Cancel the, de- the episode. The Demi cut ends with her and Lottie on the beach. I know. what this works. And it's a beautiful, beautiful final shot. It is. What are you freaking out about? You, I'm not freaking out. I, I, I fucked up and then okay, you got so, the leapfrog the thing well, I was going to say. I guess I, I, I completed your thought because you were clearly wait, I didn't middle it. Okay. I had a middle. So wait. Because well, uh, that wasn't in. I watched okay. the, the, How the Warner the Brothers cut. cut. I mean the, the it Goldie cut. It is a freeze of them hugging. <laughs> They're by the, she's like kissing the dog and then she walks up and she's like, I'm sorry. And then the last line is, we really showed him. It's, it's, I mean, it is very much like me finishing a college essay where I'm like, in conclusion, it's a land of contrast. Right? Well, so, okay. So in, in the Demi cut, Christine Lottie has a weird on again, off again relationship with Fred Ward playing character named Biscuits. Biscuits. Yeah, of course. Right. We stand a legend. Cool we guy. Stand a legend. <laughs> cool name. Cool guy. Yeah, exactly. No, he's, he's actually not a cool guy, but. No, he's like a dummy with a temper who runs a nightclub. Yes. Right. And wants to be a big shot. I mean, a classic like Fred Ward perform. Like, I mean, totally. well cast. Yes. Excellent Ward. In the demi cut, he hits her. Yeah, he slaps her. She slaps him back. He slaps her again, or whatever. Or maybe she slaps him. He slaps. They, they have a little sort of exchange of blows. But it is a little bit harrowing. Oh, it's no good. And it makes you realize she should be away from this guy. Right. Uh, she needs to figure out what the fuck she's doing with her life, which is probably one of the only reasons that she's even opens herself up eventually to Goldie in the first place, uh, is because she realizes she needs to shift. That was the main club she used to perform at. Yes. She can't perform yes. there anymore. I mean, their fight is him over anymore. him being like, now that there's a war on, I can make so much money from this club. Am I wrong in thinking that the Goldie Hut removes the hits and just makes him like, oh, he's sleeping with other women? Let he kind of knocks her down off of a bike. 
Sure. That comes later. But here, you know what? I'm going to queue up the fucking cut right now. I'm going to check it. Okay. Uh, but there is, I don't recall. Right. I watched this morning. I, I don't believe that other than that, you see his yeah. character. Because there's like a moment of startling violence. And yeah. it feels like the Warner Brothers cut kind of sands him down a little bit. Because there's something to the fact that when he like shows up again at the ball and he's in uniform and he's about to ship out the next day and his friends are calling him by a different name. Um, and he actually seems like apologetic, like he's tried to remake himself. Right. That you really don't know whether or not to trust this guy. Right. And in the Warner Brothers cut, it's sort of arguing like, he's cute. Yeah, he kind of just comes back and it's like, hey, I fixed myself up. Uh, please forgive me. The end. Well, the thing I find kind of bittersweet and it feels like in terms of the ecology not being fucked up is coherent in the Demi version is it feels kind of sad that Goldie stays with Jack. Sure. And that Lottie ends up married to Biscuits yeah. because both of them feel like men who are limiting in them yeah, in many ways. all of what we're talking about out. Yeah, the slaps are gone. Right. They have a fight at the table. They have the fight at the bar yes. table. And then it cuts straight to Goldie in the theater looking like looking at a newsreel. Right. It's so stupid. Um, they both end up in these relationships that you feel kind of shitty about. It feels like a depressing ending. Sure. All the women are in the kitchen showing off their new, you know, model dishwashers and everything. And um, then uh, af- right after the wedding, Lottie and Goldie Hawn escape and go to the beach and sit on the beach and drink beers together. Yes. And the whole point is this is a rom-com about the two of them. It's a love story about friendship. Yes. It's two women that never had friends before. And how their lives were upended, but— uh, you know, the post-war era, America was not like, yeah, it turns out we uh, we love women's liberation and women should have jobs. And, uh, you know, we're just going to totally upend the social. There stuff. was active resentment of like the husband's coming home and being like, I can't believe you've been working. Well, I, and beyond that, it's just the 50s are such a clear reactionary fit. Like, you know, it's beyond just like, well, uh, back to normal, back mm-hmm, to normal. Right. It's more like we, we must reassert that it's like, yes, uh, the, the, the family unit is important. This is America. We are the beacon of civilization. And like, who would have known those ideals, uh, to this day, very day are still very much a problem on our society. Oh yeah. Everything's terrible. Everyone's the worst, but the, right. um, the That's way- almost like a thing now for for blankies, like uh, for like bingo or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Sure. like anytime yeah. Griffin yeah. referenced that everything is bad, the yeah. world's terrible. terrible. It's all the worst. Yes. Um, there, there is this weird sort of bittersweet ending, which is like they're still trapped by society. They're still going to be trapped in these shitty relationships yes. in many ways. But the thing they get to carry with them going forward is their relationship. That these two women have each other, which they didn't have before. They're- they're, they yes, both felt uh, isolated this is true. in different You're absolutely ways. Right. Yes, 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 yes. But there's also And that's very poignant. In the director's cut and mm-hmm. uh, Demi's cut, there is the scenes with Ed Harris after he returns. There's this scene where they walk on the <sighs> beach together. Yes. And they have more of a genuine reckoning about how they've changed. Mm-hmm. And she says, There's another guy. Which I, is I, all of this is gone from the um Yes. Uh, From the Goldie cut, which is why that sort of that Ed then suddenly flips and realizes everything just always. It just feels a little quick and a little easy. In the dummy version, Carl pulls up. Ed Harris gets out. He knocks on the door. She doesn't respond. He immediately starts to seem pissed off. Right, Right. He starts banging on the door more and more aggressively. He's super suspicious. He walks up into the other into Lottie's home. And Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell come out of the back, like, dancing together. Yeah, yeah. Which, right? that, that shot is in both cuts, yeah, of them all dancing together. Right. 
um, in in the Warner Brothers version, he like walks up to the door holding roses like a big dope, and yes. when she's not there, he's like, okay, well, on to the next door. Well, I guess I'll check next door. Right. right. Yeah, like yeah, he yeah. comes off as like totally oblivious. Right. And then when he sees them, they weirdly throw in like one extra shot where he like throws a glance back to Kurt Russell and tries to they figure out what's going do, on. But then they also have that scene where like he's going through her clothes. Right. And she's got the lead man and jersey. Like, Who's this lead man? She's like, she's what do you like, believe? It's me. I'm the lead man. And he's like, okay, where's where are my, my clothes? stuff? Right. And, and she goes, it's like, uh, here, oh, God, I got all these airplane parts here. It's somewhere under here. Why does she have fucking airplane? She this doesn't is, have airplane parts. This she is works clearly like someone rewriting this with like three hours <laughs> to go, right? Airplane parts in the closet. The, you don't see any airplane parts. Anyway, it doesn't matter. There's You're this right. beautiful thing strange. of like, they flip every balance of terms of when he's suspicious and when he's oblivious in the yes. two versions, right? So then he comes over and Goldie Hawn is like as quickly as possible trying to fix everything in the house to make it look like she hasn't been having fun on her own. Right. It's less even the evidence of a man and more just like the evidence of like a life being lived. Yes. And that is what they talk about on the beach and things like that. Right. And, and he's they, like, what's going on? And then when they're on the beach and they're talking about stuff, she makes a bunch of comments. He calls Christine Lottie a tramp a bunch of times. And she's like, you can't call her that. You're not allowed. And Ed Harris says, again. she's like, brainwash you. You've changed. You're different now. She's gotten to you somehow. And she's like, I am different now. And that's when she like right. turns her back on him and right. says, like, there's another man. But in the. In Which the, he so, was never going to suspect. He is so blindly uh, uh, trusting. Because they sort of present him as, as Lottie's guy. Like, you right. know, that's their trick. Right? Yes. Yeah. Right. And um, to be clear, in the studio cut, she does have an affair. Mm-hmm. She uh, has um, sexy sex with Mr. Kurt Russell. But she cries. Like, when they're having sex, she cries. And it's seemingly because. Of the intimacy. Sure. Uh, there's a scene where he's uh, behind her and he's yes. he's grabbing her boobs. And yes. she's very, you can tell, sort of like mixed up about it all. That's in the director's cut only. Right. There's nudity in Mixed both. up more about like she is so uncomfortable with her own sense of sexuality. Not even the morality right, right, of the right. thing as much. There is nudity in the director's cut, both in Goldie Hawn sleeping with Kurt Russell and Christine Lottie sleeping with Kurt Russell. That's cut out of the. And Kurt Russell's tush? Yeah. Tight touch. It's a little more of a sort of sordid shot. It's like yeah. rather than them under the covers, it's Russell is face down, but up. Totally no exposed. No covers. And right. then she's got the covers she's up She's got the shoulders. covers, but it's sort of, they sort of fall away. You know, like it's a right. little more natural in the um, in the demi cut than in the director's But cut. that's a big thing is like they're drunk. They go out together. They make it this clear thing that he's been hitting on her for months and months and months and months right. and months. Time is an interesting thing in both. Like this is five-ish years right. being covered and they only sort of acknowledge it sometimes. Which they, in the, in the demi cut, yeah. she says, you've been asking me out every day for the last three months. Right, 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 right. There's and stuff like that. In the Warner Brothers cut, I think she says five months and it's literally just dubbed over like they want to make her seem a little more virtuous. Oh great. They're so worried about like Goldie fans turning on her for having an affair but that's the whole point of the movie is the murkiness of it that she feels very guilty about it. It's not her being like fun and fancy free but um Right. He, she the kind movie of, was rated PG, to be clear, when it was released. Crazy. Whereas the, the director's cut probably would have been, or certainly would have been an R, I would yes. have thought. Yes. Yeah. Uh, her guard comes down. They get intimate that night. Um, he gives her the ride home. It's raining. Um, she starts crying. She wakes up the next morning and, like, reaches for him and looks over and then recognizes that it's not her husband's butt. Right. And it's this beautiful moment where it's like she for a second thinks she has woken up in her life from a year ago, then realizes this is a different man and has a complete existential panic about Okay, but in the studio, uh, Kurt puts on a bathrobe and makes her an omelet. 
I mean, to be fair, it's pretty sexy. And Kurt in the bathroom. And they have some like, I'm a man and you're a woman fight. Yeah. Yeah. Remember that all of that is not in the. It's so weird. It's which so she's bad. like, but would also, you like the nightgown or the bathrobe? And he's like, I'd rather be drowned. I'd rather be wet. And he's, you know, and then you, you cut to him in the bathroom with the apron, making the cheese omelet. And it's weird because it makes it seem like the affair is more of a conscious, deliberate decision on her part. But then she stands up for her own. Integrity? They still have well, they because they still have these scenes that are from the other cut of where course. she's like more conflicted, and I'm married, and this is wrong, and I'm not sure what to do and they about keep myself. Having an affair. Yeah. There's the scene where they're uh, uh, giving the sort of tribute to Holly Hunter, um, who's so good in this and has so much she's more to incredible. do in the demi version, um, and they sneak away uh, to make out. Um, it's, it's, is this where is Holly Hunter in her career? This was this is three this years is pretty before much it. I mean, well, she, Blood Simple. She's a voice in Blood Simple and uncredited. Um, yeah, this is this is her second movie. Yeah, she's in the Burning. Yeah, uh, in I think a small role. Um, but yeah, so she's nobody. Nobody. Because in '87, which is the pretty much her next movie. Yes, is the Raising Arizona broadcast news which year. Is crazy. Right. right. Um, I should go home and watch broadcast news right now. Yeah, I probably will. Do you want to just stay in here and do it? Um, yeah, let's just do it. This is such a good room. It's got such great energy. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to even remember all the little differences of how well, these things no, are presented. It's very hard to remember but, like, all, but we're, we, 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 so have, we have covered a lot of the well, main but differences. The other thing I was yes. going to say is, so then when Jack comes home, Kurt Russell is very hurt. They have a number of conversations in the Demi version where he's like, why are you acting weird? And she's like, I'm married. And he's like, so? And she's like, you gotta you live your own life. I'm yeah. married. What What do you not understand? Like, this matters to me. I care about this. And he both sort of starts to back off a little bit and gets very personally hurt by it. Right. His sort of wounded ego of not being the number one guy. So then there's this scene that is so well acted where he kind of very knowingly asks Christine Lottie if she wants to come see him play in the club that night. And it's one of those scenes where, like, him saying that is pretty much him saying, do you want to fuck? Right, right. Like, you're alone now, and I'm alone now. Do you want to fuck? And they both kind of go, like, yeah, let's um, go to your show tonight. Yeah. You know? And they go through the motions, and they sleep together. And she wakes up the next morning and has Ben's holding up fingers. What do you have to say? We are, we're going to skip over... Kurt Russell playing trumpet? Oh, well, he I was going to come back to it. To play Ooh. the trumpet for this movie. Ugh. And his trumpet teacher, I looked up, because Joanna was instantly like, can he play the trumpet? Yeah. And I was like, well, let's find out. It doesn't seem like he's really. No, he's playing the trumpet. Get out. Yes. Because this, it's, it was, I found a very long article that was by like some trumpet guy who's like, Worst fake trumpeting in movies. Like, here we go. He was like, fuck this, fuck that. You know, like lots of, you could tell their minds. Because I talk. was doing it. I was definitely then, watching him on the valves right. and trying and to see his lips getting tighter, like, Because this movie is so not that a big a deal. So buried in this article was him being like, now Kurt Russell in Swing Shaped is actually doing it. And I found an interview with his trumpet teacher who said he was really good and worked on it for three months. So like, you know, wow. like, I'm <laughs> impressed. Because man, he, not only is he very hot, but then getting him on some hot brass. The man can blow. Oh, boy. Uh, anyway, as you say, yes, the where he gets with Lottie, you know, which is in both cuts. Right. Yeah. But, but there's something, too, in, in the Warner Brothers cut. It just cuts at one point, and they're waking up in bed the next morning. Yes. 
And the like demi she sees him. Yeah. You see her come in, yeah. and he's playing like kind of sad jazz. Yeah. And then it's just like they all this is much fucked. longer in the, the demi has the lead up yeah. of them having like him inviting her, them and he going goes, like, out together. The this sense is a that they know what they're working towards. About people yeah. have been in love. You know what I mean? Remember, he has that whole monologue where he's introducing the song. And then how does yes? How does Goldie find out in the demi cut? Because in the Warren Brothers cut, there's a weird thing where she takes a taxi to. I don't remember. Lucky's trailer. Yeah. yeah. And then sees them and then gets back in the cab or something. It's I don't remember. I don't know. So fucking sloppy. But then there's the scene that is largely the same in both versions, but in one version, it means something. In the other yes. version, it seems completely out of nowhere where. Where they uh, fight. <laughs> well, Goldie, uh, Lottie comes over to Goldie's house and she makes her tea and they're like sort of not talking about it. Yeah. And Lottie apologizes and is like, so what are we going to do about it? And it's like, it's like, one thing. It'll never happen again. Well, we're just going to continue being friends. The three of us are just going to be friends. Right, right, right. And then they go out to the club and she like totally collapses and, and freaks out. And, and jo- Joanna, when when she says that, yeah. she w- like was like, so at that point, you're so baffled by the movie. She's like, yeah. is, is it going to be like a threesome? Like, is it going to be right. like a plural relationship? And I was like, no, I think she's in denial. And uh, yeah. But like, it doesn't matter. At that point, that's when Kurt Russell's like, I'm going to go. Right? But it like, makes you know. sense when you're watching the Demi version because 100%. you're like, this woman is so ill-equipped to deal with this that she optimistically thinks that she can just ignore it and move on. And also, um, it's a movie about people leading their lives, which is whereas the the studio cut is more about nothing. Goldie and Kurt's like crazy relationship. And then Kurt leaves the movie and the movie just sort of keeps going for a while. And you're like, Jesus. And Demi's whole point was like. The movie was about him being like a cat and a piece of shit. And he's kind of manipulating both of them. Yeah, Demi says that he's supposed to be a jerk. It's about women learning autonomy and like falling in love with each other and, you know, forming an important relationship. Mm-hmm. And it was turned into a movie that kind of negates all of the sort of feminist leanings of the film. That undercuts all of it because it has to be like, look at Goldie. She's a go-getter, huh? It's baffling. It's baffling. I'm trying to think of the other major differences. Uh, I, we've covered all the major differences. Well, not all of them. No, no. Well, not all the differences, but we have covered, I feel like, a lot of the major differences. Sure. Yeah. Um, but it is, the, I mean, it's every scene feels different, either because every scene is fucked with or the scenes surrounding that scene are so fucked with that the scenes don't have the same power. That's It's the ecology. Because that, that sort of fight scene, when I watch the original version, I'm like, that's Goldie's best acting I've ever right. seen right. and then when you watch the the Warner Brothers version you're like this makes no fucking sense yes and it is that weird thing of like uh, it does I mean this movie freaks you out a little bit I've read that like a lot here, of I'm gonna read from the sight and please. sound play this okay. is just about the fight yeah, scene yeah yeah Han is fantastic here she looks dazzled by the pain of having lost she thinks her lover and her best friend in a single blow that's what her reading of I was in love means. Yeah. That's the whole meaning. And the, the, the edit changes all the meaning of that scene mm-hmm. and that line. Yes. Um, there, there is just a coherent, very specifically observed woman in the Demi version who is usually not the kind of woman that people make movies about. And in the Warner Brothers version, it is a Frankenstein character that makes no sense. And it's, <laughs> I mean, it's cr- one of those weird things where it's like they're trying to make – I think they're fighting against the idea that like, oh, our audience is not going to like Goldie for cheating on her husband. A thousand percent. And the way they try like to – you made a movie about it. a woman cheating on her husband. I'm sorry. That's the premise. That's the script you picked. Yeah. But also the way they try to counteract that is to sometimes make her more of an innocent and sometimes make her more sort of self-righteous. Right. In a way that makes no sense. Yes. You know, like she goes from being both like a total like, you know, pushover to being like 
the rah-rah, like, well, well, listen to me. I live my life now. When in reality, it's someone who just kind of is living for the first time and is making mistakes and is confused and trying to figure out who she is. I think, as the Sight and Sound article argues, that Russell is actually the actor who suffers the most between cuts. He gets flattened out. He gets completely, everything, his performance is ruined. Yeah. Adding... Basically, like make adding scenes where he is playing a different character mm-hmm. fucks things up the most. Totally, um, because Lottie, as we've said, basically shines brightest in both cuts. Anyway, yeah, like obviously they're trying to fuck with that. She but has like, better scenes that are cut out, but her character's less fundamentally changed. Yes, um, and Han. Yeah, I mean, like everything you've said about Han is very interesting, right? Yeah. Um, I, no, I was just gonna say that watching this. There's you, also there's that. Remember, there's that final scene. That, that only the studio cut has where Kurt's on the bus. Oh yeah. Would, like, another thing All they the just kind of splice and, and, in and the and letters. Yeah. Letter is very different in yes. the right. The Warner Brothers cut for his character, he feels like a uh, like I don't know, like a manic or just like a pixie daddy. Yes. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Like He's it's a manic pixie magical, daddy. like yes. you're not a real person right. type of like just representational kind of character yes. more than anything else. Here, here are some other things. I'm now, now I'm just reading this article. Okay. There's a montage of her fixing things mm-hmm. in the house. Remember that? Like a toaster oh, yeah. or percolator yes. or whatever, yeah. uh, which I think is them just being like, look how, Good she is at machines now. Sure. The, the scene where she cuts her hair is preceded oh, by. Oh, yes, because um, in the original in, in the original version, she takes the bath with the goggles on. Yes. And then gets up, looks in the mirror and decides to cut her hair. Yes. And it's a sense of just her trying something trying different something for the different, first right, time. Right. Whereas and in, in the, the theatrical version, they have a fucking voice over the like, PA go like, remember, all women must cut their hair, which doesn't explain the fact that the rest of the women in the movie don't cut their hair. No, because they're wearing hair nuts. They wouldn't but they're also depriving her of autonomy. They're right. making her hair cut. I don't know why they did that. I don't know why they did that. And a, a mandated decision. There's shit like that that's nuts. There's something, uh, that, so Holly Hunter's character. Yes. There's this pivotal scene in both movies where she is excited to hear from her, uh, I don't know if it's she husband She gets a letter or, a couple weeks late from her husband. Husband or sweetheart, whoever, yeah. you know, like her, I think yes. it's her husband. It's her husband. Um, and then, and then immediately is told her husband is killed. It's an incredible moment in both where mm-hmm. the guy delivering the news says he's never done it before and is clearly like can't handle her yeah. crying and hugging him. But then there's in the Demi cut, there's this scene of her, Tobolowski kind of bragging about how she her her cute tear stained face was on the cover of Life, and like she's like smiling about it, but like it is a very ironic and sort of dark scene. She's become a superstar, and that's right. That her grief has become like yeah, like promotional material for the war. And then the camera pans across the catwalk where Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell are making out. Right. It's like there's this cynical tone about the sort of patriotic manipulation of everything. Yeah. Um. And that that these friendships and these, you know, transformations happened anyway. But at no point is the movie like, wasn't America great for giving these ladies a shot? You know, like no point is the Debbie movie. Right. Yeah. There's the scene where Lottie sees Fred Ward at the ball right before he's about to ship out. Please call him Biscuits. I'm sorry. (laughs) He's Biscuits at the ball. The Biscuit ball. And um, she's been dancing with a higher ranking Man in the military. Yes. And he's sort of trying to butt in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Kurt, there's a disagreement in where the higher up who is now dancing with Biscuit's ex-girlfriend is told that he needs to refer to him as his superior. Yes. 
And in the original version, it is much more tense. It, it is, is a, a fucking fascinating, complicated scene with this guy who used to think that he was a big time. Right. And he now he's like an endless in the Navy and the guy is like, you know. Know your fucking place. Yeah, exactly. Your woman's Sir. gone. Right. right. You've lost everything. And in the uh, in the studio version, it's totally recut around it. And the performance takes they pick are goofy. And it just sort of becomes like a two line joke. Right. That like his status has changed. There's just like depth and meaning cut out of every moment, like just gutted from it, scooped out from the center. Um, it does make you think, though, about like how rarely we discuss uh, editing in this way because people think about things in terms of like, oh, that scene's well edited or like, oh, they it's smarter them to add this thing in or cut this thing out. You're watching the same performances just having the center, like, removed from them. It's so strange. You realize how much every performance is, like, either totally supported or destroyed by an editor. One thing— You know, and sometimes actors will say that when they get nominated for an Oscar and people think it's, like, oh, it's, like, self-effacing, self-deprecating stuff, where they're like, I mean, I'm just, like, so grateful that the editor picked the right choices because if they picked the wrong takes, I wouldn't be here today. Right. And it is a true thing where it's like the editor and the director have so much power. It's a thing that some actors find terrifying about working in film as opposed to theater. It's a thing that I find kind of exhilarating about how sort of piecemeal it is. Mm -hmm. But you really are giving someone else the power to totally like redefine your performance because you can do things that will just never make it into the film that are the difference between your character being coherent or not. And there are also tons of cases where an actor is terrible on set and in the editing room, somehow they find a way to go, oh, if you use this and this and this, it looks like that's a thing. And you make a coherent performance as something that was not coherent on the day. The swing shift story is a Hollywood tragedy. That's what Steve Weinberg says. Mm -hmm. He says it echoes what RKO did to Orson Welles' The Magnificent Ambersons. But the difference is that even the fucked up version of Ambersons, which is the only version that exists, mm -hmm. is a masterpiece. Yeah. Whereas the fucked up version of Swing Shift is, like you say, it's, like it's Frankenstein. It just, yeah. you know. It can it can function in that weird Hollywood way that you're talking about. We're like, yeah, okay. You could sit down and watch that and come out and be like, well, I guess I just saw a not very good movie. Sure. That's, and if, that's how I felt. And if no one ever told yeah. you it got fucked with, you'd just sort of be like, well, yeah, they just, whatever. They weren't balancing the tones, right? Which, like, which they, Demi they just talks didn't figure about. It out. That was the thing that hurt him the most, was right. he felt like he had had his breakthrough movie. And then he read these reviews that were like, Swing Shift's a mess. It's a shame. Demi really seemed like he was going to be the guy. And he was saying, like, reading it, like, attacked, attacking him personally. Sure. As, like, I guess we misread this guy's potential. And for him to have to sit back and not be able to comment on it and not say, this isn't my movie. You cannot like it. I don't like it either. But this right. is fundamentally not the movie I made in every regard. I, I think it kind of broke him, but out of that comes, like, the new, even purer sort of following his own whims, Demi. Which is true of many a director we've covered. Yes. There's often that traumatic moment earlier in the career that, that sort of casts a shadow. The chrysalis. You know, like um, the Shyamalan and uh, Wide Awake, which mm -hmm. is, we all know was about a tight tight boy. It, it's, it's so tired. Uh, and James Cameron, I'm proud of too. Uh, like, right. There are many examples like that where yes. directors suffer some kind of loss of control and codifies for them yeah. that uh, they need to be in charge. 
Um, but then Demi is no tyrant. I mean, that's the thing about him that's so special. It's like never. His reputation is always as the, the, the grand collaborator. Like, right. Um, so as some directors, I guess, like the Camerons of the world or the mm-hmm. Shamans would be like, yeah, the lesson I've learned is that I'm in charge. I get final cut. Don't fuck with me. Yeah. And the lesson Demi learns is like, I should just work with my friends. Yep. It's interesting. What a weird fucking thing. That's why that box is. office game. Okay. Oh, this will be fun. It will. It's good. It's a good box office game. 84. 19, April 13th, 1984. Okay. We've got the film Swing Shift opening with 2.7 million. 2.2 million, I'm sorry. Number nine at the box office. It is not a major player. Itch. Itch. It uh, eventually topped out at, um, uh, let's see, what are, 6.6. That is bad. Not very good. Oh. Okay. Um, so that's that. Number nine. Naughty number nine. Number one at the box office, at Yon box office, is the fourth. I'm going to triple check this because it's. The it, fourth? It, the fourth. got <laughs> Orco or Ortho or whatever his name is on the brain. Um, I believe it's the fourth, yes, in a horror franchise. Okay. But it's got one of those confusing titles. Like, it's not like, you know, X4. Sure. It's, it has a title that suggests something different, um, but it is the fourth in a very long-running horror franchise. Is it Friday the 13th, the final chapter? Correct. Which, like, where they were like, Friday the 13th. The gimmick is, it's Friday the 13th. Here's a horror movie. And then Friday the 13th, part two, they were like, you love that one? Part two, it's the same thing. And then three... 3D, right? That was their gimmick that time. And four, they were like, fuck, what do we do? Let's just say it's the last one. Yeah, we milked this, right? There's no more juice left in Jason. And then that meant that that for five, they could be like, Jason's back. (laughs) You know, they could be like. No, because five is like the new beginning. Yeah, new beginning. Jason's back. No, but you know, do you not know what the plot of five is? Oh, right. It's six where Jason lives. Right, right, right. Five's a guy who wears a Jason suit. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's Tommy or whatever. It's It's, um, Tommy uh, Tommy Jarvis. It's like uh, Six is the one or where Roy, Roy, Jason, I don't know. Whatever. No, it's Tommy Jarvis. Uh, number six is Jason lives, right? Yes. That's where Jason's back. That, that, isn't that the one where they sort of explicitly start being like, he's like a demon, yeah. right? Like, you know, where they, they're, they're all in on like, like, he has magical powers. Right. Satan. I have been watching those movies because of the, um, I discovered the Paul Rust Matt Gourley sure. Voorhees I've not really watched podcast and it's been fun watching them. Yeah. Um, but I haven't gotten to four yet. Yeah. So I was more of a Freddy guy. I was always more of a Michael Myers guy. Interesting. That Freddy, was my Freddy's franchise. My, my dude of the, of I'm the three big bad on those. I'm bad on the Freddy's. Really? Freddy. I like no backwards. I think I've seen ones, one, yeah. two and a three and then maybe new nightmare. Oh wow. I'm a Hellraiser guy. Pinhead. Well, I mean, Hellraiser has ever made more sense than that. <laughs> Um, all right so that you know opening and it's just one of those classic things no freddy movie has ever made a ton of money Mm -hmm. i mean sorry jason movie no no friday the third sure i think the highest grossing if you exclude like the remake Mm -hmm. is the first one made like 30 Uh but they just would make them every fucking year for two million bucks and they'd always make like 20 but that's the equivalent of like uh, it was just like yeah that's all the horror movies that come out today that make like 50 or 60. But it, it, it was the establishment of that model, basically. Right, right. It's just like, look, like, I don't know, it. fucking call Friday the 13th. Yeah. Kill yeah. some teens. Yeah, kill some make teens. Make sure it's out by October. Yeah. See you later. 
because it was just it was Paramount, but they yeah. were just like I think it was like it was like the Junior Dusty Office, uh-huh. and it would just be like, yeah, come. On. Get out in the woods. I don't yeah. know. Get a yeah, camera. Just do it. Just do Wait, it. you need a camera now? Fine. Get a camera. You need a camera to make a movie? So it opens to $11 million. I mean, big up. <laughs> and uh, it made 32 Yeah, wow. Number two at the box office mm-hmm. is one of the big comedies of the year. Um, and it does start a franchise. It starts a comedy franchise. It does. Ends nodding. It does. It starts a franchise. How many are in the franchise? A lot? <laughs> Uh, yeah. Six at this point? Oh, I think there's more. Is it Police Academy? Yeah. The original Police Academy. How many are there? Seven. Can I see if I can name them all? Uh, yeah. Let me just cue them up, please. Um, one second. Okay. Name them all, please. There are seven. Okay. Police Academy. Well, good job. You got that one. Oh, boy. Uh, Police Academy 2, their first assignment? Correct. Uh, Police Academy 3, Back to Basics? Close. Back to training? Back in training. Back yes. in training. Which really, geez. One assignment and they're back in training. Number four. Mission to Moscow? No, that's number seven. Fuck. You're, you're, now you're spiraling. This is Operation Miami Beach? That's five. Okay. <laughs> Which I believe is Assignment Miami Beach. Is this Citizens on Patrol? Four. Yes, that's right. Okay. Five is Assignment Miami Beach. What's six? Six is way more serious sounding than Assignment Miami Beach. Yes, and seven's <laughs> Six mission sounds to like Moscow. an escalation. Seven's mission to Moscow. Six, five is like we assigned you Miami Beach. I don't know. Check it out. Six is six is like uh oh, oh no. Nine eleven. <laughs> Police Academy nine eleven. <laughs> no, it is Police Academy six. City under siege. Oh, of course. What's of happening course. to the city? I don't know. It's under siege. That does not sound like a comedy. No. Not at all. Yeah. Anyway, that, but this is the first police academy. Do you remember how one of the cast members, his whole thing is he just made sounds with his mouth? Of course. Oh, of course. That's like the only thing anyone remembers about police academy, right? Is that Sweet Chuck? Is that his character's name? I don't fucking know. What happened to that kind of comedy? It was the sixth highest grossing movie of the year. That's crazy. You know, I know it's bring it back, and it's and it's made. Look, it's been out for th- four weeks. It's made thirty seven million dollars. It's yeah. gonna make like ninety. That's so it's cute. like you know, it is kind of crazy. This is the last of pre VHS. It know? is kind of crazy in that period of time. Someone can get up there and just do really good sound effects on stage at like the improv for ten minutes, and people are like, we "Should put him in movies." <laughs> <laughs> what What does he play? Uh, cop who's good at sound effects. Like, you could have an act that was totally incompatible with narrative comedy. And they'd still figure out a reason why they could put you in a movie. Number three at the box office. Mm-hmm. Um, a good movie um, from a director we could cover someday. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, I would call it an, uh, an adventure. Oh, an adventure. Is that the only thing you'd call it? Uh, sort of with it's got some romance. Hmm, it's not romancing the stone. It is romancing the stone. Well, okay. Uh, good movie. Yeah, Douglas good movie. Turner Zemeckis. <sighs> Let's do Zemeckis. It's just long. It's fucking long. It's fucking like how long? long? Twenty-two. Oh, boy, Ooh. it's long. Yeah, and I don't know where you cut. I don't think you can cut. That's the you problem. I don't really think you cut. Can cut. <sighs> one day, one day, right? Cause what? Cause what? You want to cut and not do Marwin? That's the problem. No, we can't. We gotta do Marwin. We are you must kidding be me? welcomed. Yeah. Well, and so what? You're not going to cut the early ones because those are the ones that everyone likes the most. 
Um, His it, early run is great because what? It's I want to hold your hand, then use cars, then romancing the stone, then back to the future. Yeah. You're not going to start late. No, not at all. And you're not going to get out early. Honestly, the ones you combine are the fucking cartoons. That's what you do. Yeah, what are great, the cartoons? Great. You know, like uh, Polar Express, Christmas Carol, Beowulf, like where he keeps doing these 3D. Yeah, I never heard of those <laughs> movies. <laughs> I think all three grossed over $100 million. Uh, I don't think Beowulf made it there. The other two definitely Beowulf did. probably made 87, I'm guessing. Well, now I'm going to have to find out. I get out, to find out. Okay. Uh, yeah, 82 domestic. Can I guess the other ones? I think Polar Express is 170. Well, just give me a second. Jesus Christ. Polar. I don't know why I didn't just click on Zomacus. Well, because Box Office Mojo has changed its interface. I'm, I'm trying to deal with They're it. They're clearly thrown off by the studio shift as well. <laughs> I always root for Grendel. 187? That's insane. And then Christmas Carol is 110? It definitely snuck over 100. Let's find out. Uh, there's lots of them. It made 137. Whoa. But they were also expensive. That was sort of the hit they, on they them, all, right? uh, Polar Express, I think... Didn't lose money, especially because they kept re-releasing it. The other ones were so expensive. And he was about to do uh, Yellow Submarine. <laughs> Jesus. With Peter Serafinovich. Gee, well, all right. Was going to play John Lennon, I think. Or Paul McCartney. I forget which one he was going to play. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Weird idea. Yeah, bad idea. Weird idea. I, I think Zemeckis, uh is kind of just has bad ideas these days. Well. He tell, has ideas. Tell that to Allied, a movie that rules. He's a real ally. All right, number four. The only real ally. Is another. Of allied. Yes. Number four. No, he's got his stands. You know, they'll never leave him. Yeah. Number four mm-hmm. is um, an adventure film. A throwback. A real throwback. Hmm. A real throwback. What kind of star are we looking at here? Um. It, it, it's it, it, he is a star. He was a star. Mm. Um, still alive or just no longer a star? Still, still alive. Uh, definitely no longer a star. Like a Euro kind of star. Kind of like a Rucker Hauer type. Uh, it's not Depardieu. No, no, no. Think a little less classy than Lambert that. Wilson. You're, you're thinking you're, you, you, you are correct. Oh, Christopher Lambert. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. Christopher Lambert. It's not I, Highlander. Not Highlander. Highlander comes later. So this Tarzan, is, Greystoke, Legend yes. of Tarzan. Yes. Greystroke, okay. The Legend of Tarzan, comma, Lord of the Apes. Long title. Too long. Uh, an Oscar nominated film. Ralph Richardson, I believe. Uh, and uh, Rick Baker, I think. Uh, Rick Baker. Sure, sure, sure. With those monkeys. So uh, just... Um, Every 10 years or so, I think some studios just like, let's do a Tarzan. We were talking about this Tarzan, Peter Pan, like no, not seven years can go by without someone being like, can we? And it's not like there are people out there who are like, I'm a real Tarzan head. Yeah. I love Tarzan. Yeah. Like even like Godzilla or whatever, there are people who are like, I worship that series. I know all of its intricacies, right? No one's like, I love the lore of Tarzan. Yeah, Remember there is a live action Tarzan movie that grossed $120 million less than five years ago? Yeah. That no one talks about? David Yates talks about it when he's talking to his financial planner. Number five is a comedy that I had on VHS and I watched all the time. Um... Any little more than that. It's I don't got remember a big star who's still very much in his comedy phase. His comedy phase. So now he's moved out. Is it a Hanks? Is it the money pit? I'm shaking my head now. Lagging their fingers. But it is Hanks. It is Hanks. And it's too early to be big. That's right. But it's not little. No. 
It's it's a big one. It's not turn. One day there would be a completely separate movie called A Bigger One of These. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I wanted to do that clue because it's funny. Yeah, it's a funny clue. The movie's called Splash. (laughs) The film that saved Disney. God, I've seen that movie a bunch. The film that saved Disney. Well, that's weird. Um, It's also the creation of Touchdown. Is it? Yeah. Um, And do you know that Splash Mountain was originally supposed to be a splash ride? Nope. Did not know that. That's crazy. Um, Instead, it's a ride based on, of course, Path of Least Resistance, Song of the South. Right. Uh, which is pretty much their only acknowledgement of Song of the South, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, that, and I guess, I, I did have a VHS when I was a kid of zippity doo It would be part of right. the sing-along exactly. compilation. Right, but yes. not, of course, no other. And even my parents, even when I was five, were like, eh, it's a tricky one. I was like, what Song of the South? And they were like, hmm, hmm. Yeah, how do we, hmm. hmm. <laughs> so much context to give you here. For more, tune in to, you must remember this. That's right. Season um, the five or six or whatever. Splash, uh, Ron Howard film. Guy falls in love with a mermaid. Daryl Hannah. Uh, Brian Grazer said he came up with the idea for that movie because he felt like he, quote, couldn't meet a nice girl in LA. All these girls were trashy, so he dreamed that he could meet a mermaid. Great. Uh, have, you, have you seen Splash? I saw many times as a child. I yeah, probably have not I seen, seen it, it in uh, so many years since 1996. I think the, honestly, same. That I used to watch the Disney Channel. Like, it has yeah, so many people TV, in it though. Yeah, it has like like Daryl Hannah, Eugene I mean, Levy, John Candy. I mean, Candy. John Candy, Eugene Levy, right? And Richard right. Schiff shows up. Like all these people pop up. Yeah, yeah. I think Richard Schiff pop up. We'll do Ron remember. Howard. Some other movies. Oh, uh, we're not going to do Ron Howard. Um, Maybe he's in the bracket though. He might be. We could put him in there. He might be. He's, there's an argument for him. There's an argument. <laughs> you got Moscow on the Hudson. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, classic in those. There's so many of those 80s comedies. It's like. Didn't y'all have Smirnoff uh, sue uh, Robin Williams for that movie? We should have. Yeah. In Soviet America, Yakov sues you. <laughs> <laughs> what a country. Um, number seven, Terms of Endearment. Um, mm which is uh, obviously still running the table. Right, from the previous year. Yep, to just wow. won an Oscar, though. Mm-hmm. You've got Swing Shift. you got Footloose. Ah, everybody got to get uh, Cut Footloose. Footloose. Uh, mm-hmm. you got um, Where the Boys Are. The Barbara, the, not Barbara, Bette Midler movie? No, you're no. thinking of For the Boys. Yes, what's Where the Boys it Are? It appears to be a film about uh, sexy ladies in bathing suits on the beach. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know, it's like a sex comedy. It's called Where the Boys Are? Yeah. Um, Note to self. Buy all remaining copies. <laughs> That's it. Great. That's, what the, a, that's the okay. scene. Well, perfect episode. Final I think thoughts. it's a fascinating story. What happened to this movie? It was genuinely fun to watch both cuts, which I thought would be sort of a pain in the ass. I agree. And I think like with I'm, I'll do anything. It was a pain in the ass. And I watched those cuts probably yeah. like six months apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I also think it's a fascinating story what happened to my brain being in this different studio because I feel upside down. I'm sorry, Greg. No, it's not your fault. I'm not saying I didn't. I don't mean it as any sort of uh, No, I know. I'm just saying more as apologetic. I don't want to see you all turned well, upside down, not, inside please. out, mixed up. And- upside down. I mean, now it's fun. Though. The boy yeah, you turned fun. me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Isn't it weird, though? Like so much of just like our we, we've been doing this for so long now. Coming True. up on five years. True. This podcast. Right. Yeah. This podcast is going to kindergarten. About to hit 250. That's Jesus. crazy. What should we do for 250? 
I don't know. Do you remember my original idea for 200? What was it? Well, I don't want to restate it because maybe it's a surprise for 250. Okay, fine. I'll say it off mic. That's fine. I'll tell you what movie Jonathan Debbie didn't love making off mic. That sounds like we should end this episode. I think so. <laughs> All okay. right. Thank See you. ya, folks. Well, hey, come on. That's just my, my, my classic sign-off. See ya, folks. <laughs> that I do all the time when I'm in this room, apparently. It is weird, though, how much, like, it's like if you work in an office every day and then one day you go in and the, the desks are flipped, you know? And you're just like, my entire sense of where things are is so tied to the specific setup. Hosley out. Just wanted to do my sign-off that I do <laughs> only in this room. <laughs> But uh, please continue with uh, the outro of the episode. Thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe. Thanks to Andrew Gouda for our social media. They're high-fiving now? Yeah! Woo! They want to for a theme song. Joe Bowen and Pat Rollins for artwork. Go to tpublic.com for some real nerdy shirts. Uh, next week, tune in for Stop Making Sense. Demi Adija Weebe. Amazing episode, amazing movie. Demi on Demi. Demi on... Demi. Demi squared. D squared. Um, I need to, I, I don't know. Either take a nap or have five more cups of coffee or run or lie down or something. Uh, and as always, my classic sign off. I'll hear you when I see you. <laughs>